What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this week's episode, we consider five questions a board of directors must ask in the time of coronavirus. Will FCPA enforcement remain robust? Minky Sun reports from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Mike Ward on how tech can assist compliance during COVID-19. Is there a new approach to business integrity? Allison Taylor explores. Will coronavirus take down any public companies? Francine McKenna talks to us about that. How about contact tracing and its compliance issues? Stakeholder principles during COVID-19 and red flags to uncover fraud and corruption, courtesy Jonathan Marks on his always great board and fraud blog. Does playing golf enhance compliance? And what about Elon Musk indemnifying the Tesla board of directors? We review podcasts on coronavirus and compliance, the five-part special series on the current state of compliance in Brazil with the Acevedo Sete Law Firm. And finally, we conclude the month of exploration of continuous improvement and compliance program and begin the month on written standards in 31 days to a more effective compliance program. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 203 for the week ending, May 1, 2020, the Bleach and UV Light Edition. Jay, as certain Americans step back from having bleach for breakfast and UV light for lunch, and with that meal, that selection of food, you don't need a dinner, uh, we are both self-distancing, and we're back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. How are the Rosen clan? Uh, we're starting to hear the term Groundhog Day, not only from people we communicate with in the outside world, but with the uh, girls here, their sleeping patterns are off a little bit, so... Uh, I think we're starting to strain a little bit uh, at the seams here in Simi Valley, but in spite of that, we soldier on. Well, Jay, uh, I wanted to give, before we get started, a special shout out today for all of our listeners in the great country of Chile. They are number two on our hit parade of countries uh, that listen to the FCPA Compliance Report. So if you're a Chilean and you're listening to... um, uh, I'm sorry, this week in FCPA, uh, we want to give you a big shout out and we're going to have a special uh, invitation to you uh, after the podcast and the outro, outro. So stay tuned for that. So shout out to all compliance practitioners and listeners in Chile. Great. So, Tom, why don't we start out with uh, the first story? This actually comes to us published on LinkedIn from um Muel Captain and the question, the article is five questions for a board and the time of the coronavirus. So this was an interesting article, Jay. It's written from the perspective of a European 
um, board with a supervisory board, but the questions I thought were really good. So uh, number one, is the original purpose still the ultimate goal? If uh, what's the purpose of your corporation? Has it been lost or shifted? Um, this is an acid test for any new targets set by management. What values are dominant now? Is the value of doing business ethically and compliance? Is it accountability? Have you lost your core value? What uh, do you need to get those back? Uh, what is the dominant value now? I really like this next one. In which sequence are stakeholders addressed? And this is not something we typically talk about, but on what stakeholders did management focus on when the crisis started? Uh, did it think about its its own bonus? Did it think about um, shareholder dividend? Did it think about employee health? Did it think about support for society? What was the sequence of those thoughts and those questions? And that can tell you a lot about the culture of the company. Are you disregarding standards of regulation simply because times are tough? Uh, I hope the answer is no, but that's a question you need to um, to ask yourself. And is finally, is there an openness about current dilemmas? Are you communicating? Is there accountability from management down to the employees? And are employees able to raise their hand and speak up in a meaningful way? So some really good questions I think that uh, boards should ask themselves. Uh, Jay, I know one of the questions on uh, many compliance practitioners' minds is, Will FCPA enforcement slack off during the time of coronavirus, health crisis, and economic dislocation, or will it remain robust? What did Mingi's son over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal tell us? So uh, she says that an anti-corruption unit of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which we all know is the OECD, has warned countries to be on the guard for potential bribery particularly in the healthcare sector as they tackle the coronavirus pandemic. The OECD Working Group on Bribery and International Business Transactions said last week that the economic fallout in human suffering from the pandemic can create conditions, quote, ripe for corruption, unquote, and the bribery and corruption could undermine how companies respond to the crisis. The working group will examine the pandemic, examine, sorry, the pandemic's possible effects on companies bribing foreign public officials to win businesses and its consequences, and will make recommendations to the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention's 44 signatories, according to Drago Koss, chairman of the group. The working group said that corruption could divert resources, such as medicines, medical equipment, from their intended purposes and result in unequal and harmful access to them. It is vital that company that countries remain actively engaged in anti-corruption efforts and work together to ensure their efforts to overcome the crisis are not weakened by corruption. So uh, reporting, according to the uh, DOJ, David Furr, an assistant chief of the U.S. DOJ's anti-foreign bribery unit said, reporting and detecting misconduct continue to be very important things for companies to do. So in answer to your question, uh, we will still be on the lookout for FCPA violations during the time of coronavirus. Next up, uh, we go back to a double dip on risk and compliance. And uh, can you tell us what Mike Ward shared with us about how he can use artificial intelligence to report and anticipate fraud? 
Sure, Jay. As you noted, the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, courtesy of Dylan Tokar, published an interview with Mike Ward. Mike was the former CCO at Juniper Systems, got them through their uh, FCPA violation, and he recently joined the law firm of Vincent Elkins as a partner in their West Coast office, although I'm sad to report for you, it's not LA, but I think up in San Francisco. And it's a wide-ranging interview. He talked about his uh, background, uh, what he did at uh, Juniper and how he got them through uh, the uh, the issues that they were involved with, but perhaps uh, the most prescient part was what can you do during a time of downturn to make your compliance program more efficient and more effective? And Mike talked about data analytics because you can look at 100% of the transactions, and when you look at everything, you can identify patterns, and you can disprove assumptions and anecdotes that you might have thought were true. You can identify the true anomalies and patterns that you never imagined. So um, really uh, a a great uh, insight from Mike, and uh, this is really how compliance needs to move forward. Obviously, I've been talking about this for several years now, and in the 2020s, I think the Department of Justice is also focused on data analytics. Uh, and it, this inflection point of our economy, it may be the time that compliance finally pivots away from being lawyer-driven, written by lawyers, for lawyers, just being seen as it truly is a business process and how data analytics can help that uh, all of that processing uh, move forward. Jay, we had a really interesting article from Allison Taylor in the Ethical Systems blog. What did Allison have to tell us about business integrity? Sure, Tom. Uh, Last November, Allison went to Dubai as a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Transparency and Anti-Corruption. A pandemic was the last thing on the delegates' minds, but they spent the days thinking creatively and broadly about the future of integrity across institutions and cultures. And they thought if we as a global society are to meet our most pressing developmental change challenges, including sustainable development goals, then tackling corruption and abuse of power are prerequisite. Eliminating corruption could instantly cover the cost of each of the other goals. While the narrow legalistic framing of anti-bribery efforts has led to impressive progress, it will not suffice for the 2020s. To drive meaningful change, businesses need to think more systematically about their relationship to society. Now we find ourselves in a remarkable crisis, with COVID-19 threatening to devastate most countries' economic and health systems. Suddenly, we can see how our governments and businesses perform in real time, which are rising to the occasion and which ones are failing. Companies retooling to provide essential medical equipment or taking active steps to protect their workers are commended. Those that simply shut down, furlough staff, or force anxious workers to show up are being roundly criticized. In this context, there should be a new agenda for business integrity, and it's more relevant now than ever. The agenda has four pillars, and we will put forth more practical guidance on each of them over the next several months. We believe that business leaders must, first of all, commit to ethics and integrity beyond mere legal compliance. This includes a focus on the negative human rights impacts of corruption. Two, strengthen corporate culture and incentives to drive continuous improvement. When I hear those words, I think of you, Tom, because you are always talking about how a company must have continuous improvement with regards to their ethics and compliance posture. 
Number three, leverage technologies to reduce the scope of corruption, recognizing that technology tools provide unprecedented opportunities to tackle corruption. And finally, number four, support collective action to drive scale and impact. This would present a huge opportunity for transparency and the anti-corruption movement where more rapid progress is needed. A stunned and needy world is watching closely as businesses strive to cope with this emergency. How companies conduct themselves within and without will help determine the future societal value. The public will assess whether enterprises deserve to survive. Right now, a gulf is opening between those that protect their employees and emphasize the longer term and those that prioritize short-term shareholder interests. COVID-19's trajectory and potential have sharpened our focus, marking a new agenda for making business integrity more important now than ever. We welcome a new contributor uh, to the FCPA, excuse me, this week in FCPA. She's not actually a new contributor, but her site's a new contributor. And that, of course, is Francine McKenna. Francine left Market Watch at the end of last year, and uh, she started her own site called The Dig. And it's uh, behind a firewall. But if you've got the money, I would uh, really urge you to uh, check out her site uh, and subscribe for a year. Uh, her, by going out on her own, it's allowed Francine uh, freedom and flexibility that she didn't have even at a, a company as large as uh, Market Watch and the Wall Street Journal. So uh, today I wanted to bring uh, forward an article she posted this week entitled, Is Coronavirus Going to Take Down Any Big Companies? And she says that uh, probably not because of a couple of reasons. One, she believes the SEC and PCAOB will work with big four audit firms to discuss how to address the risk arisen from the coronavirus health crisis and that how that risk uh, bears on opinions on financial statements for U.S. public companies. But also, the uh, and we saw this actually today uh, in sort of uh, breaking news, not a hot take, but really breaking news, that the SEC is looking much more closely at um, Chinese companies trying to access the capital markets in the United States. And it was around the Chinese uh, coffee company that's trying to compete with Starbucks in China, whose um, books and records were turned out were completely fraudulent. Uh, and uh, the greater problem with Chinese companies is they are completely opaque to uh, U.S. regulatory oversight and indeed even internal audit. Uh, external audit oversight uh, because they don't disclose their books and records. So it's going to be no doubt part of the Trump administration trade war against China. But for the investor, uh, I think it's a a very uh, propitious time to consider, do you really want to put your money in a Chinese company when you know nothing? And that's uh, the situation you find yourself in. But take a look at Francine's site, The Dig. Uh, It is really Francine Unleashed. And uh, if you enjoy that uh, type of journalism, uh, this is definitely the site for you. So shout out to Francine and uh, happy to have an uh, article on the dig for the first time on the uh, This Week in FCPA. Great, Tom. So this week uh, we return to one of our friends from academia, uh, the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. And a uh, bevy of attorneys from Deba Voice and Plimpton consider the question of can contact tracing apps help get many of us back to work soon, a framework for evaluating the various options and legal concerns. 
Each passing week of lockdown brings mounting economic and social costs, increasing the urgency to find ways to get more people back to work safely. A large part of that effort involves the development of contact tracing apps for mobile phones. These apps promise to allow low-risk individuals to return to some form of normal activity in the near term while continuing to isolate those with higher risks. But they also present cybersecurity and privacy concerns. Countries such as China, Hong Kong, Israel, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan have all had varying degrees of success in using electronic contact tracing. In regions that have not yet implemented these apps, there are several models being considered, the most publicized of which is, a de- is developed through a partnership between Apple and Google. Each model generally involves the collection of health and or location data. Most models then use the data to quickly identify individuals who have had close interactions with someone who tested positive. For each variable, developers must try to balance several competing interests, which include the rate of adoption, the risk of deliberate or inadvertent recording of false data, limiting the number of people who are misclassified as either low or high risks, protecting legitimate cybersecurity, privacy, and constitutional concerns of individuals, and the overall ability of the program to allow more people to safely increase. Striking the right balance among these competing objectives will require different choices to be made. First of all, uh, we have to look at the voluntary versus mandatory decision. This is not binary. Some programs are voluntary for the general population, but become mandatory for those testing positive or arriving from abroad and are therefore ordered to quarantine. In general, the more mandatory the program and the more government involvement, the more likely it is to face scrutiny in the U.S. under the Fourth and Fifteenth Amendments. It will also uh, face scrutiny in Europe under European Conventions on Human Rights. In terms of the GPS versus Bluetooth argument, the collection of GPS data raises privacy and cybersecurity concerns in the United States and Europe because it can reveal sensitive personal information about individuals, such as uh, going to see a psychiatrist. GPS technology is also somewhat limited in determining precise locations indoors and in areas with lots of built large buildings. Positive test results. Self-reporting or verified recording. In many proposals, patients who test positive are encouraged but not required to record the result in the app. In terms of consequences of confirmed contact with an infection person, for most models, when a person participating in the program tests positive for the COVID-19 antibody, other program participants with whom the person had been in close contact in the last 14 days are now considered high risk. In other uses, uh, in addition to notifying potential infective individuals, some contact tracing apps are used for a variety of non- or other COVID-19-related functions, including enforcement of quarantine by requiring isolated persons to have their phones with them and and turned on at all times, monitoring adherence to social distancing requirements, imposition of travel or work restrictions, and collections of symptom information. In terms of general criticisms, there are some criticisms that apply to all electronic contact tracing models. First of all, the programs do not work for those who do not have their own smartphones. 
which is true for many elderly and low-income individuals. All of the technologies are imprecise and may result in false positives, and they may also have false negatives. And finally, there will also be significant software and hardware difficulties, including a lack of compatibility between phones using different operating systems. In conclusion, electronic contract tracing apps are likely to be part of a successful back-to-work program, which will also include increased testing, manual contact tracing, and continued social distancing. There are cybersecurity, privacy, and constitutional concerns about these apps because they have the potential to collect and disclose sensitive information. If some cities are able to relax the social distancing requirement in part because of contact tracing programs, pressure will mount on other cities to adopt similar measures. It will take care and creativity to implement electronic contact tracing programs that are widely adopted, effective at identifying high-risk individuals and adequately addressing legitimate cybersecurity, privacy, and constitutional concerns. So this one's... uh, a real uh, important situation that we've got to get this right out of the gate. So it t- takes a lot of thoughtful consideration. Um, have we? Have you had any conversation on this with our colleague Jonathan Armstrong in the UK about how they're looking at addressing this? So um, we did. We handled it in a recent podcast. And my question to Jonathan started out with, uh, does GDPR prevent a company from even collecting this type of information before we even get to the issue of whether they can utilize it in any way or does some sort of public health emergency override it. And and Jonathan said he really believes it's a common sense approach that uh, you can um, utilize this information. You can't collect this information. But, of course, you have to be uh, very careful because it's very sensitive personal information, and you have to put additional protections around it. You may only be able to keep it for a short period of time, and you may use it for a very limited purpose. It all, of course, starts with a DPIA, uh, data privacy impact assessment. But if you do a DPIA, have a plan, execute on that plan, Jonathan felt uh, at least you have a very good argument if the regulators come knocking. But this is a, a, a very unusual time, obviously, unprecedented, in fact. And so that uh, he thought it was something that uh, companies could, could seriously consider. Thanks. Next up, Tom, we go to the vaulted Ivy hallways of the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And could you tell us some of the stakeholder principles for COVID-19 from the World Economic Forum? Sure. Just as we had uh, a discussion around uh, managing directors on uh, uh, boards in Europe, uh, this comes to us, as you, you know correctly, Jay, from the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum and stakeholders and principle, stakeholder principles in the COVID era, era. And so uh, the WEF endorsed the following stakeholder principles. Number one, to employees, our principle is to keep you safe. We will continue to do everything we can to protect the workplace and to help you adapt to new working conditions. They might want to send that one to the Trump administration. Number two, to our ecosystem of suppliers and customers, our principle is to secure our shared business continuity. We will continue to work to keep supply chains open and integrate you into our business response. 
Three, to our customers, our principle is to maintain fair prices and commercial terms for essential supplies, uh, i.e. no price gouging. Four, to governments and society, our principle is to offer full support. They really need to send that one to the Trump administration. We stand ready and will continue to complement public action with our resources, capability, and know-how. And finally, number six, to our shareholders, our principles remain the long-term viability of the company and its potential to sustain, excuse me, create sustainable value. So uh, I thought these were uh, great uh, principles, and it's something every company should uh, certainly consider and I would say strive for. So uh, some good stuff from the uh, WEF. It reminded me in uh, tone a little bit of what we heard from the Business Roundtable at the end of the year. Last year, uh, you know, it didn't specifically address pandemics back then, but I think a lot of the concepts hold true. Right. So uh, next up, we go to one of our favorite contributors, Jonathan Marks from Baker Tilly, and this is published in his board and fraud blog. And he says, using red flags to uncover fraud and corruption. But what exactly is a red flag? A red flag, as some of you know, is an unusual circumstance or a pattern of anomalies that should alert a reasonable person of possible misconduct. In each such instance, further inquiry and due diligence might be necessary to determine if the anomalies are explainable and if not, an investigation should be considered. But not every red flag means there's fraud. And like you mentioned above in the title, you need to seek it out to understand. Here are some common red flags to consider. Under the uh, column of senior leadership, does senior leadership report only by exception or by routine? Do they only talk about profit rather than customer focused? And do they manage by crisis or manage by objectives? In terms of transactions, does the transaction and its reflection in the books and records make sense? Does the person who recorded the transaction seem odd? Was there an apparent or perceived override of internal controls in order to record the transaction? Looking at data, is there unusual timing of the transaction? This includes time of day, day of week, or of the season. Frequency of transactions. Transactions that are occurring too frequently or not frequently enough are suspicious. Each organization has its own operating patterns, and transactions should be booked accordingly. In terms of documents, are there missing or altered documents? Evidence of backdating. No original documents are available. Controls. Is there a lack of controls in general? Are there known overrides? Is there an unwillingness to remediate or long ago intermediate gaps? Or excuse me, unremitted gaps. Behavior. Is there rationalization? Is there change in behavior, contradictory behavior, or recurring negative patterns? Lack of stability and adequate income for lifestyle. And last, under the FCPA bribery category for red flags, is the company operating in a high-pressure culture hit the sales targets? A culture that may require entertaining of or offering gifts to government officials and a country where business partners could also be considered government officials. As Jonathan stated at the top of this blog, just because a company has a red flag doesn't mean it is committing fraud. And only after further inquiry and due diligence can one make the call. So, Jay, uh, did you know that playing golf can enhance your compliance program? 
That was a lesson that Mort Rosen tried to teach me, but he also taught me that little boys on the golf course should be seen and not heard. So I picked up the ladder. Well, that's a good lesson to take forward because in a, uh, a really good post from Keith Hennessy, Keith and I were, uh, we worked together at Halliburton. So I'm pretty good friends with Keith. Um, he's now of counsel at Johnson and Givens here in Houston. He, uh, talked about, uh, why compliance officers need to travel. And this is builds upon a couple of, um, columns that Dick Casson has put out in, um, uh, the FCPA blog over the last couple of weeks. And uh, so I'm just going to go through these, and then we're going to talk about golf. One, the miscreants will shunt your remote communications. Two, there are almost always additional files kept at the local office. Three, the local staff, ask them if they happen to keep a clippings file. Uh, I'm going to skip four because that's golf. Five, training for third parties and their employees needs to be in their local language. Uh, no doubt uh, near and dear to your heart as former Mr. Translations. And six, when at a distant location, uh, you can watch the uh, entire attendees, uh, which is much more difficult to do if you're on a Skype call with a group. But let me focus on golf because this was a really good insight. And Keith talked about it not so much in terms of um, investigating your own company or your own folks, but uh, when you go overseas, you often will play golf with your contemporaries at other companies. So if you're a compliance officer, you might uh, visit or talk to uh, business people from a competitor or um, – the CCO of a competitor and uh, uh, BD people tend to play golf, or at least it's not unusual. And what Keith found was that in playing golf and you're around other people for four hours and they might, might be uh, imbibing an adult beverage, uh, people tend to talk and that um, they will talk to you as an outsider in a way where um, obviously they, they don't have a reporting obligation to you, nor do you have a reporting obligation to their management. So uh, you can garner information, and the information you garner can be useful to you into looking at your compliance program. Because if you're in the energy industry and uh, you talk to a competitor in Dubai, um, that may be something that you need to look at in your company. So I thought that was a really interesting interesting insight uh, from Keith, but the entire blog post, I think, has some uh, really good points. And uh, check it out on the uh, FCPA blog. Great. And to wrap things up, uh, also to a contributor that we hear from a lot, uh, Kevin LaCroix and his DNO diary. And it's entitled, In Lieu of DNO Insurance, Elon Musk Agrees to Provide Tesla with Coverage, quote and unquote. Readers know that Keith LaCroix has been following the SEC enforcement action and the securities class action litigation arising from Tesla CEO Elon Musk famous, quote, take private, unquote, tweets. Keith, excuse me, um, Kevin recently noted that in court securities, in the court security suit about the tweets, they ruled that the case can go forward. He's sure that he's not the only one who wondered while thinking about these events, what kind of directors and officer insurance does Kessler carry? 
According to recent FEC filings, Tesla recently decided to forego DNO insurance for the current period based on an undertaking by Musk to provide the company and its board with equivalent, quote, coverage, unquote. On April 28, 2020, Tesla filed with the SEC an amendment addressing a number of corporate governance and executive comp issues. One of note. Tesla determined not to renew its directors and officers' liability for the 2019-2020 year due to disproportionately high premiums quoted by the insurance companies. Instead, Musk agreed with Tesla to personally provide coverage, uh, substantially equivalent to such a policy for a one-year period, and the other members of the board are third-party beneficiaries thereof. While this arrangement is unusual, it's not unprecedented in Kevin's experience. Prior uh, prior uh, opportunities have underscored the problem for Tesla and its directors with relying on must to provide substantially equivalent coverage. His agreement to provide coverage to the director is dependent upon his financial ability to honor his commitment. However, the director's need for courage could arise in a set of circumstances that could undermine Musk's risk to honor his commitment. So it appears that the board might be in a little bit of a conflict of interest because if they don't keep Musk in power and if he doesn't have a company that's financially viable, he won't be able to provide insurance. It's worth noting, Kevin concludes, that Tesla has long had an aggressive approach to limiting its insurance costs. For example, in its 2018 10K, the company said in its risk factors and it's said about this in its risk factors in its most recent filing. Our insurance strategy may not be adequate to protect us from business risks. As a general matter, we do not maintain as much insurance coverage as many other companies do, and in some cases, we do not maintain it at all. This statement says nothing specifically about the company's purchase of DNO insurance, but we can certainly assume that the company's overall insurance approach affects its DNO insurance purchase. And in a way, the company's latest arrangement with Musk providing the self-coverage option just takes this overall approach to its logical extreme. So Jay, AMI has a webinar coming up. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I would love to tell you about that. Uh, My colleague, um, Rod Grandin and Eric Feldman are going to be in a session entitled Crisis and Compliance in the Federal Marketplace. Maintaining Effective Ethics and Compliance Oversight, Controls, and Culture in the Midst of Coronavirus Pandemic Disruption. Uh, They're going to be joined on the panel with Dismas Locaria, who's a partner with Venable LLP in Washington, D.C., and Thomas Topolsky, who's an Executive Vice President of Infrastructure Business Development at Parsons Corporation. In this webinar, our panelists will discuss current challenges and practical responses to help organizations maintain the effectiveness of their ethics and compliance programs in the current crisis. They will also present a framework for an ethical decision-making process based on practical considerations and industry experience. Uh, The webinar will take place next Tuesday on May 5th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9 p.m. Pacific Standard and we will provide uh, a sign-up link in the show notes. And uh, Tom and I are also promoting it on our social website. So we hope you'll come check it out. This is the first of many um, AMI web 
uh, webinars to come your way. So, Jay, we had a uh, extraordinarily full week of podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network on coronavirus, excuse me, compliance and coronavirus. I had Jeffrey Hazlett on five key actions to take during this period. Mari Ryan talked about employee wellness during coronavirus, and that's something that uh, I'm certainly going to explore with her further because uh, it's not a topic, I think, that gets enough play in compliance and ethics. Brenda Ferraro from Prevalent came on to talk to me about jump-starting your third-party risk management program, uh, a new offering from Prevalent, really uh, designed to to help companies out during this time. I was uh, very pleased to have a special series featuring the Brazilian law firm of Acevedo Sete, where we explored the current compliance scene in Brazil. Uh, On episode one, Isabel Franco talked about how car wash changed the culture. Episode two, Luis Salas on investigations and antitrust compliance in Brazil. Episode three, Glaucia Ferreira on due diligence and background investigations in Brazil. We had a two-header on uh, episode four with Ingrid Santos and Juliana Boya, who talked about Me Too in Brazil and sexual harassment and discrimination. And in part five, uh, Luis Biancani talked about environmental compliance. Uh, On the Compliance Podcast Network, we concluded our month of continuous improvement by looking at uh, four separate issues, tech upgrades to foster and continuous improvement on Monday, on Tuesday, using email sweeps for continuous improvement, on Wednesday, using social media for continuous improvement, and on t- Thursday, they, we concluded the month. That month was sponsored, of course, by Affiliated Monitors. On Friday, uh, today, May 1, we start a new month of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. We're going to look at written standards uh, for this month, code of conduct, policies and procedures, um, and uh, controls in a little bit. So uh, check out uh, this month um, of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program uh, for all things written standards. I've become a, a big fan of um, using Spotify, and uh, I keep threatening myself that I'm going to build up a custom playlist. And with our uh, social distancing right now, I decided to uh, put my idea into motion, and I'm starting to build my uh, coronavirus playlist. And uh, I posted on LinkedIn, and I posted on Twitter, and I'd like to just quickly go over the uh, names of the first seven uh, songs and bands that we have up there, and it'd be great to uh, get feedback. I know Tom's a big fan of the second song on the list, so song number one, Hide and Seek by Imogene Heap. Number two, Jump Into the Fire by Harry Nilsson. Number three, Pulling Muscles from the Shell, Squeeze. Number four, We're All Looking for Better Things from the Kinks, Higher Love, Steve Winwood. All Around the World or the Myth of Fingers, Fingerprints by Tom Simon, Paul Simon, sorry. Sweet Caroline for you Boston fans in the Fenways, Fisherman's Blues by the Waterboys, and Just Can't Wait by Boston's own Jay Giles Band. So there isn't really rhyme or reason, but as songs strike me, I'm adding them to the list. Love to have your comments and hope you'll keep following along. Jay, we're going to link to that list in the show notes as well. You want to take us home? Sure. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, 
and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 203, for the week ending May 1st, 2020, the Bleach and UV Light Edition. Uh, We thank you for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, We hope you and yours will be safe and healthy in the uh, ensuing weeks and days. And have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week with episode 204. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. First of all, I'd like to once again thank our listeners from Chile. If you are from Chile, please send me an email and tell me what you like about the show. Also, if there's any questions you have, Jay and I would love to do a mailbag issue. And as you are our number two country for listenership, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. As a call to action for everyone else, I would ask that you tell one person about this podcast. We're the only weekly roundup of commentary in the FCPA compliance and ethics world, and uh, we're trying to get the word out organically about our podcast. So if you would tell one person about our podcast, it would greatly help us grow our listenership as well. Thank you for listening to this week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week when we take up some of the top ethics and compliance stories which caught our collective eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of the C-Suite Radio Network. If you haven't checked out the C-Suite Radio Network, please do so. It's c-suiteradionetwork.com. There's some great shows on there that uh, I'm a part of, and I know if you like this show, you're going to like some of the shows on the C-Suite Radio Network. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.